Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History Today podcast. In this edition, the editor Paul Lay talks to historian and commentator on global affairs Michael Burley about his new book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, A History of Now. The November issue of History Today is out now, and to find out more, visit historytoday.com forward slash magazine. Well, we're joined today by the distinguished historian and commentator Michael Burley, whose new book, The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, is described as a history of now. Um, Michael, we start the book, I suppose, in late 80s, early 90s, um, inspired, I presume, by the old end of history thesis, that moment in history when we thought liberal democracy was going to be the victor for all eternity, and suddenly the uplands were ahead for us all. Um, but then 9-11 happened, 2003 Iraq war happened, and then the 2008 crash. What are the challenges of writing a history of now? Um, well, the, the biggest challenge you've already alluded to, which is where do you start? And that's in the sense is how long does a piece of string have to be? And uh, some people have said to me, well, why didn't you start with 9-11? But actually, I've written books on terrorism, and there's a lot on 9-11. So I thought, no, I don't want to do that, which actually, for younger people it must be almost ancient history nowadays anyway so then i thought well what are the two seminal events in in both in terms of our economy and in terms of uh, world affairs and i thought well it's the invasion of iraq and all the chaos that ensued from that and then the 2008 financial crisis which many countries haven't recovered from so i began really there and then took it up to um i was still writing it about three weeks ago so it is very much a history of now. Then. Yeah. Now, the cover is a revealing one. We've got the newly uh, extra-empowered Chinese Premier there, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Um, what does that tell us about the world? Well, it's the first cover of a book of mine where I'm, I'm entirely satisfied that the cover conveys exactly what the book wants to uh, do. So on the top, you've got almost like a radiant sun. You've got Xi Jinping. Next down, you've got Vladimir Putin looking a bit shifty and not, uh, not his normal Mr. Macho image with shades. And then right down at the bottom with what, what looks like a lot of caked-on TV makeup, you've got Donald Trump in in almost darkness and semi-profile so you can read into that what you want but I mean the the point of the photographs and of course of the book is to trace um, what I think is going on which is the gradual um, decline of American power and the ascendancy of Chinese power although I, I stress that I don't don't believe that's necessarily going to doesn't have to be a conflictual relationship and you know a lot of what has been first of all it takes it takes two sides to be provocative in any situation and then secondly um, being assertive is not the same as being aggressive if you see what I mean so that's one theme of the book the second thing which is the title 
Um, obviously, um, it's from uh, the first sentence of uh, Charles Dickens's Tale of Two Cities, but what I'm actually quoting is, is the fact that Xi Jinping was the first Chinese leader to go to Davos last January, and he did refer to um, that very phrase, you know, the best of times, the worst of times, except, of course, he was talking about the impact of globalisation rather than um, Dickens, who was talking really about the Industrial Revolution, because the Dickens book is, on one level, a novel about the French Revolution, but at the same time it's about the Industrial Revolution. And to just take one point out of this, take one important point out of it, which is that the Industrial Revolution, I know it was very bumpy and distressing for lots of people, and they ended up doing terrible jobs and in factories and so on, but by the end of that process, it leads to us sitting in this room doing you doing your job, me doing my job, and it's all fine, and society, you know, the workforce has adapted to it. Of course, it wasn't so good for horses, you know, hundreds of millions of which went to the knacker's yard because horses were no longer required. And in a way, if you look at what she was talking about, about globalisation, because of the uh, the onset of um, you know what's called the fourth industrial revolution, there'll be more resort to artificial intelligence, to robots, and we don't know whether some of us are going to go the way of the horses or whether it will all ultimately work out fine and we'll be in a complementary relationship to machines. So the book, just to summarise that series of thoughts, the book is first of all <clears throat> about you know straightforward geopolitical shifts, which in a way are my equivalent of. Dickens writing about the French Revolution, mm -hmm. but then secondly, the profound sort of undercurrents going on, uh, which you know are related to the to the geopolitics, but they're they're going to long outlast everybody on the front of my book. And there's also a, a suggestion, I suppose, on the cover of what you might call a gold, silver, and bronze position. There, I mean, there is a lot of talk at China at the moment, and we've seen a lot of analysis in in, in particular after the recent. Uh, conference but is is our perception that china is particularly advanced in understanding this this fourth industrial revolution is that a correct um, yeah i think that's judgment i think that's totally correct i think they've really got a handle on this i mean they're, they're about to spend about 125 billion dollars on robots and uh you know, they've been going around the world with a shopping list and they bought, for example, the most sophisticated German um, robotics company, KUKA, they bought that last year. And their intention is that the robots are going to be made in China. Uh, so, yes, they're getting really into it. And if we look at this, one of the things that... One of the troubling aspects of this book and the survey there is the relative decline of liberal democracy, indeed, democracy generally. I mean, we, we have China, we have Russia, which is hardly uh, a mature democracy. We see everything that's happening in, mm -hmm. in Turkey. And of course, the relative decline of the United States and certainly Europe. Mm -hmm. um, are we moving towards a post-democratic world? Well, I think certainly there have been uh, opinion poll surveys, and it's quite quite depressing in a way that young people in particular seem to be um, not so enthused about about a democratic model. I mean, one should be slightly cautious because um, much as I admire, for example, the ability of the people who run China to think very strategically and in, in the long term, you know, they obviously, these are not stupid people and they've, they are more to the point, unlike our politicians, these men have been sort of stress tested in a succession of more difficult tasks. So you could be posted to run Tibet 
three million Tibetans, or you could be sent to a medium-sized province, which will be roughly the size of Spain, say 45 million people, or you could go to a big city which has got 120 million people in it. So, um, you know, by the time you get to the top in that system, you've really um, done some work, as it were, and know lots of uh, things. But So that's one problem. I mean, we've also, I think, just gone through a phase where... Um, both institutions and um, what you might call the essential experts without whom our societies don't function too well, be it judges or scientific experts or academics or whatever, uh, and politicians, of course, they've all taken a massive knock. You know, people do not have much confidence in, in them anymore. And that's obviously very different from what's going on in China and some other places. Where that confidence in the ruling elite remains. Presumably. Where it remains, yes. Yeah. And do you think that's true of Russia as well? I say in the book that, for example, they have um, an exceptionally talented foreign service. You know, the foreign ministry seems to be to be very, very able. But um, I would say that... Um, you know, that there is a fundamental problem there, which is that President Putin is just simply presiding. He's like a type of uh, man holding a balance. He's a broker of power, which is in the hands of largely oligarchs or security officials, and his job is to take away or to give, and, you know, that's what he does. It, it suits everybody to have him there. Whether that remains the case as he heads into his dotage, because he's, you know, if he's re-elected next um, spring... He will. He's already surpassed the record of Leonid Brezhnev, but he'll be en route to, on the way to replacing the record of Stalin. Mm-hmm. And people might get slightly fed up with it and look around for somebody else. But there isn't really anybody else at the moment. Let's have a look at the structure of the book. Yeah. Um, in terms of what what we have is, it doesn't exist. It's a quite formatted book in terms mm-hmm. of uh, one gets used to the uh, to the writing style. One gets used to the historical surveys that are mm-hmm. there. The choice of topics here, in terms of starting with the Gulf, we look at ISIS, we look at Turkey, and we look elsewhere, and then it expands to what you might call the big three, Russia, China, mm-hmm. and the United States. Um, and Europe. But tell us about the way you structured that and your thinking behind that structure. Well, you know, you have, when you write a book, because you, you, you think, well, it's going to be X number of pages, and this is what I'm going to do. So, first of all, um, you know, Latin America and Africa went out, out the window, effectively. So it's very much a Northern Hemisphere book, so to speak. And, uh, in a sense, it's quite a classical focus, which is it's the existing great powers. Um, what I did do, I mean, apart from... Um, trying to integrate as much history as I thought I needed to explain the context for people who'd never picked up a book on China or Russia or Iran or whatever. I also decided to to intersperse the narrative with with um, things which you, I suppose you could have put them in boxes, but they're too long, which take a deeper look at some of the issues I'm raising. So, for example, um, when I'm talking about Donald Trump, I um, explain quite how he became such a celebrity. Well, first of all, what he did in the property world, which is to put his name on things, and then how he became a celebrity through, um, you know, The Apprentice Show, and uh, to look at the relationship between the production of TV and politics. And I'm quite interested in that, that that, that, that in a way politicians are almost creatures of anonymous TV producers. So I've done this again and again. So then if we're talking, I don't know, about China's external relations with its immediate 
Asia-Pacific neighbours. Uh, there are clearly ongoing maritime disputes, and I explain precisely what those are about, which is not just oil and gas or whatever, or questions of national prestige, but, but actually they're about fish protein. And, you know, people mm. probably haven't thought much about the fact that the Chinese consume vast amounts of seafood and fish, and uh, there you are, you have it. At the end of the, the book, you do consider ways out of this, um, what you call post-populist politics, which seems to be the ideology of our time, at least in uh, so-called advanced countries. You're quite full of praise for Macron, for example, in terms of what he's trying to do, the Marche movement. Did you become more optimistic, having written the book, or more pessimistic? Oh, I'm a pretty optimistic person. A friend of mine calls me a eupeptic pessimist, which means a happy pessimist. <laughs> um, uh, I, I would say uh, I think there are um, there are ways in which... I mean, the, the basic problem is that the political class is not talking the same language as a lot of the voters. Mm -hmm. That's the essential thing. It's a dialogue of the deaf. So if somebody turns up on your doorstep in, I don't know, um, somewhere in Norfolk and says, you know, what would you like to talk about? And they say, well, it's, it's um, the number of Polish migrants in my high street and all these Polish shops don't like it, don't like it. Things have changed, you know, too much. It's not where I lived. And then if your response is to say, well, yes, you know, globalisation is a complex thing, Mr Jones or Mr Smith, and uh, however it brings inestimable benefits as well, you're not actually really having a conversation addressing that person's deep-seated fears and anxieties about their identity, etc., etc. So one needs politicians who are capable of doing that without succumbing to... I mean, you see, the, the thing is that there's also an ambient change which in a way is to do with the pervasiveness of social media that there's a type of mobocracy out mm -hmm. there uh, waiting to, to pounce and to you know activate itself and that of course is deeply worrying and nobody should be pandering to that so it's a in a way we need politicians of a far higher caliber than the ones we've currently got who really can think about you know what what trends and tendencies are afoot what the mood is and how to how to play it let me ask you the big question. Is there enough room in this world for the United States and China as superpowers? There is a big difference between a country being assertive or indeed in, in claiming um, rights of exceptionalism, which of course America has claimed throughout its entire history. You know, the Americans like imposing um, rules and norms on other people, which they then promptly don't sign up to themselves. I mean, like the international criminal court, um, war crimes court, and I also think they're not members of the um, UN Convention on the Laws of the Sea. China actually is, uh, which is, there's some ironies in that. A friend of mine describes it as being like, um, you know, you've got a, you have a lift, an elevator, and there's a very fat guy in it called Mr. America, and along comes another equally fat guy called Mr. China, who's going to also wants to be in that lift. And this could potentially, you know, become very um, dangerous. And there are certainly vested interests, but there are people in America who, um, you know, they would actively see and want a conflict with China before it gets too strong. And 
there are big industrial, if you think about it, there are big industrial interests which are involved in this. So just think for a second. I mean, what's called the Green Army doesn't cost much. I mean, most of its costs are actually in wages and pensions and healthcare costs. And a machine gun doesn't cost a lot or a hand grenade. But any war with China would be an air-sea war. And these are huge, costly defence platforms like submarines, carriers, you know, the Joint Strike Fighter, etc., etc., and very sophisticated missiles. So the the defence companies have obviously got an interest in talking up a war with China because they're going to be earning a lot, hell of a lot more from a submarine than they are from a machine gun or an armoured personnel carrier. That's just a fact. So really, uh, there are also lots of people in the Pentagon who are actively planning for such a conflict, again, before China gets to the point where, I mean, at the moment, it can certainly deter America, but, you know, what happens 10, 20 years down the line. Now, my personal view on it is that um, China is much more inwardly focused than anybody thinks. It's very much focused on itself. So if you take its three intelligence services... 80% of their time, and that includes their equivalent of MI6 or the CIA, is focused on China, Mm. on the domestic population. When they think of abroad, they think of their westerly province, Xinjiang, they think of Tibet, they think of Taiwan, they think of Hong Kong. Then they think about what's beyond that. And the idea that they're somehow, you know, want to take over the world, why would they? Because the, the power of their investment, their money... You know their their soft power actually, which is growing. Given that the American president is damaging American soft power with every single tweet and with every day, you almost put your head in your hands thinking, what's he going to do next? It's quite effortless for China to slip into that and also to become a good citizen, as it were, in the institutions that the Americans are abandoning mm-hmm. on climate change. Um, uh, you know on uh, the trans-pacific trade partnership they've given up on all this and china can really just walk in there with its soft power and one of the very strong themes you have in this book is that you emphasize the importance of diplomacy over that of the military i think again and again and again that particularly in the united states there is this military party if you like yeah um, that wants to emphasize uh, aggression mm. uh, there's even aspects of protectionism there i suppose it is surely striking that there are uh, three generals in at the very top of trump's administration now personally i find that very worrying mm-hmm. i mean some people say oh well they're the adults in the room you know plus the former royal executive rex tillerson the secretary of state but actually um you know <sighs> One wonders what... I mean, I actually, I know uh, uh, H.R. McMasters. I've known him for some time, the National Security Advisor. He's a very nice, very smart man who was in charge of Pentagon future war planning before he took this job. But, you know, their experiences have bearings on some of the decisions that are being made. So, for example, they all were involved in uh, the war in Iraq enthusiastically, and they all... Uh, had troops who were killed or maimed by Iranian Revolutionary Guard supplied um, improvised explosive devices. So they have views of Iran which are pretty negative. Now I'm not sure really they're the best people to be determining policy towards Iran. Um, There's more disruption to come I'm sure Um, but as a primer to our current predicaments I think Michael Burley's wonderful book The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, A History of Now is as good as it gets, and it's out on the 2nd of November, published by Macmillan. Thank you, Michael.